We're going to pray for Alex in just a minute, and thank you, sir, for sharing faithfully and powerfully. God was certainly at work in you. Scripture passage for this morning is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, 18 through 25. 18 through 25 passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. I'm actually going to start, though, for the sake of how the passage flows in verse 17. If you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of and the honoring of God's word. First Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 17. This is Paul dialoguing here. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is a power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we begin by praying for Alex, who just shared such a mighty and powerful testimony with us. And we ask, Lord, that you would go before him as he seeks to faithfully proclaim Jesus um, in the way that he was just talking about, and that there would be news and time of gospel fruit emerging from that faithfulness. And Lord, bless him as he does his work, which is difficult and fantastic. And I agree with everything that he said, will indeed, I think, bless a lot of people. And we thank you that he has stuck it out in his lab and and finds himself now in a new environment. But Lord, you have been with him and um, he has been doing such excellent work. And I pray that he would feel really encouraged and affirmed today and that our body would encourage and affirm him even after this service. Lord, we do need your help. This is a powerful passage. It's, it's thick. It's so robust. And so we need your help to understand it and to unpack it. Um, we can't even hardly do it justice this morning. And so I pray that even the hearing of the word this morning would compel us to go out afterwards and keep reading it and keep meditating on it and keep growing. We love you, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our text this morning happens to be actually the text of the first sermon that I ever preached all the way back in the fall of 2008 when I was a student at UF and a pastoral intern at Christ Community Church, which is where I went to church during undergrad. It's like 10 miles west of here, way out in the burbs. And I got to tell you, I say preached in the loosest possible sense of that word. Kind of like when a three-year-old walks around in a Little Tyke's cozy coop, and then tells his parents that he was driving. Uh, In that sense, I was preaching. I I remember people saying, though, that they were encouraged, and they were 
helped by the message, although three of the people that were saying that were my parents who came up uh, to hear the message and then my girlfriend who is now my wife, so that's something. Um, the thing is, if you actually listen to the message, and I don't think it's available online anymore, which is not surprising, uh, it is really something. God bless the people of, of Christ's community. If you like to cringe, I can send you a digital copy. But despite my shortcomings on that day, it's still very possible that people were actually encouraged and edified, that they weren't just being polite. Why? Because whatever power was at work in me that morning, it wasn't about me, and it actually didn't come from me at all. It came from somewhere and someone else entirely in a manner that accounts for human weakness and even benefits in a way from human weakness. We're going to unpack all of that and more this morning, which means that this is going to be, I think, a rather encouraging time for those of us who feel unimpressive according to worldly standards, for those of us who feel weak, for those of us who are beleaguered and languishing, for those of us who feel like we've totally blown it. On the other hand, it's going to be a tough, yet hopefully redemptive, morning for high-achieving, impressive people, those of us who walked in the door with a bit of a strut, I mean, hopefully metaphorically, not literally, because otherwise, goodness, And it's going to be a tough morning for those of us who are easily taken in by high-achieving, impressive people. Two reflections this morning concerning the star of the show in this text, which is the word of the cross. Two reflections concerning the word of the cross. Number one, it's foolishness. And then number two, it's the power of God. It's foolishness, and it's the power of God. Wait, I mean, isn't that a contradiction of the highest order? You'll see. Let's start with that first reflection. The word of the cross is foolishness. Foolishness to whom? Verse 18. To everyone who is perishing. I'm not exaggerating when I say that this is the most downer way a passage of Scripture could possibly begin. Right out of the gate, we learn that some people are in the process of perishing, the Apostle Paul alluding here to eternal ruin, not just death. And they are in the process of perishing with the full head of steam on account of their willful rebellion against God in order to enthrone themselves and do things their way according to their own standards and desires. This is the essence of what we call sin, a word we use regularly but don't always take time to define, and sin leads to perishing. I am hearing more and more people these days claim to be Christians, at least sort of, and not believe in sin, and therefore not the perishing or the hell or anything like that. And this isn't just anecdotal, it's actually reflected in a lot of research and Barner research. It's very common these days for people to profess Christianity in a loose sense, but deny the existence of sin. 
if this describes you, I'm trying to say this as honestly but compassionately as possible, please know that there's a very good chance that you are worshiping a God made in your own image, not the God of the Bible, and whose image we are made. When you're making a God in your own image, you can be perfectly in sync with said God at all times because at the end of the day, you're the one calling the moral shots based on personal feelings, etc. So instead of being told about God's desires and decrees, such as in his word, his desires and his decrees are essentially what you think they should be baptized by cultural norms. Or to put it another way, sin isn't a problem because God just so happens to be in favor of everything you're up to because you're deciding everything he's in favor of. Believing in God without believing in sin is basically for modern spiritual people who want the lifestyle benefits they think spirituality has to offer without the burden of actually taking up their cross and following Jesus and being morally accountable to God's standards and to one another. Where does that kind of posture come from? It comes from human pridefulness, church, which is a hyperinflated view of the self and our capacity, which turns out to be the ground beneath all of sin, something that writers and thinkers like C.S. Lewis have discussed at very great length. And you know, if pridefulness is the problem behind the problem of sin, if pridefulness is the problem behind the problem of sin, of course the word of the cross will be foolishness to perishing people. Prideful, perishing people are infatuated with human impressiveness, either their own or the impressiveness of other people, like celebrities who are particularly eloquent or athletic or musical. And then that becomes the wisdom of the world, verse 20. Impressiveness determining value. Impressiveness almost equated with salvation. It's the wisdom that the Gentiles or the Greeks of Greco-Roman Corinth sought and embraced. Paul uses the Greeks and the Gentiles interchangeably in verse 22 and verse 23, referring to non-Jewish pagans. Thus, their affinity for celebrating and honoring those with very captivating rhetorical skills, the eloquent, the persuasive, the witty, the philosophically profound. See, for example, the references in verse 22, the wise, the scribe, the debater of this age, they were the heroes. But the word of the cross is Christ crucified, verse 23. The Messiah, that is Jesus, killed in the most unimpressive way possible by means of a torture device so crude you weren't even supposed to talk about it in polite society. The Messiah killed and ultimately raised to save those who believe in him. See the end of verse 21. Save, implying that we all need saving from something, that we're not 
as impressive as we'd like to believe and that our impressiveness doesn't get us as far as we would like to think. So how do you think this word preached by Paul and his ministry partners went over with those who were infatuated with the wisdom of the world and in the process of perishing, with people who were impressed with themselves and with one another. It went over like a lead balloon. And their eyes, and the eyes of people perishing, consumed with themselves, it was total foolishness. It was the antithesis of wisdom, totally humiliating both in methodology and effect. And you know, if pridefulness is the problem behind the problem of sin, it makes sense that the word of the cross would be a stumbling block to the Jews, verse 22, and possibly to many of us as well, Jewish or not. Prideful people tend to assume that there's a very heavy burden of proof on God's side of things in which he owes us evidence and signs and so forth, that demonstrate his existence in nature beyond a shadow of a doubt. If we don't believe, it's because he hasn't given us good enough reasons to believe, otherwise we would believe. And prideful people tend to assume that the primary kind of saving that we need, if any, is mainly from those people out there who are against us. Sometimes that kind of salvation is a very legitimate need, and God certainly cares about it, which is why we see... For example, story after story in Israel's history of God intervening and saving the Israelites from their enemies. He cares about that kind of salvation too. Know that, church. But we all need saving in terms of our sin and what we might call our ultimate enemy, Satan, who at every moment urges us to plunge ourselves headlong into sinful water. We all need that kind of saving. The Gentiles were captured by human impressiveness and achievements. The Jews, on the other hand, were more captured by their desire for signs, for miraculous evidence. At some point, uh, religious leaders said to Jesus, you can read about this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and 39, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And their expectations in terms of Messiah was uh, more along the lines of a conquering king, not a crucified king. Partly because the Hebrew scriptures indeed point toward a victorious redeemer king. But might there have been a tendency as well to push geopolitical redemption, in their case from Roman oppression, so forward in their minds that redemption in terms of their sin took something of a back seat, making the crucified Christ even more scandalous than it needed to be. Probably so, because that's the nature of every human heart. We tend to have a lot more clarity concerning other people's sin than our own sin. That's what pride does. If we find the word of the cross to be foolishness, the problem lies with us, not with the word. 
And it turns out that we are perishing on account of our pride. Prideful infatuation with our impressive selves. Prideful infatuation with our impressive heroes. Prideful conclusions that God hasn't done enough to prove himself. Prideful conclusions that the only saving we really need is from various threats out there. Because otherwise we'd be doing fine. Thank you very much. The Gentiles wrestled with this. The Jews wrestled with this. We wrestle with this. And unless the Lord wakes us up and brings us unto his son, Jesus Christ, that we might repent of our sin and believe in him, we are perishing. That is the witness of scripture. Despite how self-assured we may feel, see verse 19, I, that is God, will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 19 comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, which is why your Bible probably sets verse 19 off in quotation marks. One of the presenting problems of Israel's day and Isaiah's day was these so-called other prophets who were sophisticated and compelling in a worldly sense but had no idea what God was actually up to because they really didn't know God and instead trusted in their own wisdom and abilities. God rejected or he thwarted them, and he'll ultimately do the same thing today when we trust in ourselves and our own wisdom instead of in him. And church, this is why one of my primary prayers as a pastor is that the Lord would use whatever means he sees fit, and I mean whatever means, to humble those of us who are proud and self-assured so that the word which seems foolish to us might become sweeter than honey. And in light of this, I, can I have a word with those of us who are in Christ, who according to God's grace no longer see the word of the cross as folly? When we proclaim Christ crucified, do not be surprised when people consider your message foolishness of the highest order. And don't be discouraged. Because no matter what you might hear in response, the problem doesn't lie with the message and the feedback isn't personal. And dare I say, don't spend too much of your time and your energy trying to make things you know, more relevant or whatever the case may be. Do we, do we pay attention to our context and preach and teach in a way that's loving and hospitable and accessible to people in our time and place? Yes and amen, if that's what we mean by relevant. Great. But if by, you know, relevant we mean, you know, culturally hip or avant-garde in such a way that people will suddenly find Christianity more palatable, we can call that off right now. The word of the cross, faithfully proclaimed, will be folly to those who are perishing, no matter how good our coffee is. The message of the Messiah dying in the most humiliating way possible for our sin will always sour prideful people. And honestly, when our message isn't folly to perishing people, it means that we've probably bended our message in such a way that it's no longer the word of the cross. But sometimes the word of the cross will be something other than folly to those who hear it. Which brings us, thankfully, to our far more encouraging second reflection. 
a reflection of such good news for those of us who feel weak or humiliated, those of us who feel beleaguered or languishing, for those of us who feel like we've blown it. Second reflection, the word of the cross is the power of God. The power of God for whom? For those who are being saved. Verse 18. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that this is the most encouraging news we could possibly read in the pages of Scripture. Some people who were formerly perishing are now being saved. And they are being saved by God, not via personal impressiveness, not by being very skilled intellectually or rhetorically or whatever, and then earning a way to God. They are being saved by God. Being saved might give us some pause, since most of us are accustomed to thinking of people as either being as either you know saved or not saved. We don't expect a, a participle here. Recently, I I read a story about firefighters rescuing a bear that was stuck in a tree, or maybe I watched something about this on. YouTube, because this really does sound like something that would randomly show up on your YouTubes. You know how that is. Honestly, I thought the only animals that firefighters were in the business of rescuing were cats, so good for them on, on being really inclusive. Praise God. So that's the story that I was reading. Imagine the captain of the fire department being like, hey, did you rescue the bear? Right? That's a fair question to ask. And then one of the firefighters is like, well... The bear is being saved. You know, that would be an odd, probably unsatisfactory response. But scripture describes salvation in what are commonly called three tenses. Those in Christ are saved, they are being saved, and they will be saved. All of those things are true simultaneously. And when you think about it, that actually works pretty well with the bear story, which becomes a useful yet certainly imperfect illustration. At some point, the bear was saved, you know, physically removed from the tree, and then while being transported back to its home, hopefully not a zoo, because that would put a huge dent in this illustration, <laughs> while being transported back to its home, we can say that the bear is being saved, since it's out of the tree, but it's not home yet. And then at some point, the bear will reach its true home, so in that sense, we can say that it will be saved. Those of us who are in Christ and therefore sanctified by God, recall verse 2, are saved. We've been brought from death to life. And we are being saved because we're not home yet. So God graciously carries us along, ministering to us and growing us more and more into the likeness of his Son and empowering us through the Holy Spirit. Amen? I mean, that's how, that's how it's working right now. And then we will be saved. One day we'll be home, home. One day we'll live together in the new heaven and the new earth in the immediate presence of the Almighty God, and it's going to be a blast. To those of us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. Christ crucified, a proclaimed reality that's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God to those who are called 
both Jews and Greeks. Verse 24. Power in that Christ's death and resurrection accomplished salvation for those who are in Christ. Power in that as the Christ crucified message goes out in the Corinth and other cities around the Mediterranean basin into the hinterlands of the Roman Empire into all the corners of the globe. As it does that, those who are called will respond with repentant faith. Wisdom. And that all are therefore invited to enter the household of God. Jews and Greeks, no favoritism shown to the elites. Amen. In fact, there's a real sense in which the weak, the cast aside, etc. You can hear echoes of the Beatitudes here in the Sermon on the Mount. Have something of an upper hand because they'll be far more likely to resonate with the humiliated, crucified Messiah. Both the form of his death and their need for him to rescue them. It's a touch easier to release the wisdom of this world and pursue God's wisdom when the world's wisdom has you on the sidelines anyway, right? And indeed, if you walked in this morning defeated and despairing, here's what you need to hear. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God the Father made his son Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Some of you might be perplexed by this language of, you can see it, of God calling people unto salvation. And indeed, so much ink has been spilled across the history of the church concerning the nature of God's sovereign activity and salvation and how that fits with our moral responsibility and accountability and so forth. We'll get into that more as we go here in this series in 1 Corinthians. But let me just say this for now. Here's how you can know if you're called. Hear the word of Christ and respond with humble repentance and faith. Do that, and guess what? You are called. Repent of doing things your way and your own power and throw all of your hope onto Christ Jesus. Do that, and you're called. And if you're already in Christ and this really wasn't your week or your month or your year, your decade, I don't know, some of you are really in it right now. You are nonetheless being saved by the same God who already saved you. He is carrying you and he is ministering to you and one day you will be home. And perhaps this passage, I hope, it gives us the, the boost we need to confidently and fearlessly preach Christ crucified to the people that we work with and to our neighbors and to our family members. Recently, God has been doing a work in my heart showing me that most of my own evangelistic reluctance has to do with fear, specifically fear of man. And accordingly, a small view of God that minimizes his power. People look real big, God looks small. So this passage has been hitting me like the best kind of lightning bolt, reminding me that Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. If that is true, and it is, I want to tell everyone I know about Christ, in particular his death and resurrection, 
Not to be a good Christian and check a box, but because I get to be a party. Think about this. I get to be a party. You get to be a party to the unleashing of supernatural power that will transform lives. Some will find it foolish, but some will hear and be saved. And here's how powerful that word truly is. This is from a testimony from Cedric Kanana. I think it's how you pronounce his name. It was printed in Christianity Today just this past month. We already heard a, a powerful testimony from Alex. This is a different sort of testimony, two-for-one testimony today. Looking at the clock, we have time for it, so I'm going to roll with it, and then that will be the end of our, our message. This is Cedric's testimony. He <laughs> says, after having two daughters and making every known sacrifice and appeal to Allah and the African spirits for a son, my father was ready to divorce my mother when I came along, and from birth I was dedicated to Allah. These plans were disrupted when the country descended into civil war, followed by genocide, ethnic hatred that tore the country apart, tore our family apart as well. My father divorced my mother and married another witch, actually, while my mother and her children were left to seek charity. Needing food, I took to living on the streets at age nine. As a teenager, I learned how to bury my pain through drug use, but also how to profit through it. After entering school, I could identify people who were looking to escape problems and pain, and I capitalized on it. I took monthly trips to Congo and returned with drugs to sell, first marijuana and eventually cocaine. I longed for my father's approval and sought to remind him of his hopes for me to become a leader. All that changed one day in my final year of school. While I was warming up for a basketball game, something in my brain seemed to burst, and I was overwhelmed by sounds and swirling images. I stumbled around, trying to escape the roar. Everything and everyone was terrifying. I had lost my mind. Diagnoses would range from drug-related to psychosis to spiritual oppression. The priest of a local god told my mother, when he was born, he was given to you because of your sacrifices. He belongs to the gods, but he has broken the bonds. This madness is their punishment. Ceremonies and sacrifices were performed, but nothing changed. My mother then took me to a western psychiatric hospital in the capital where I received a strong sedative and stayed for several months. After I'd spent nearly a year on antipsychotic medications, a Christian friend of my mother said, why can't you try Jesus? Bring Cedric to see our pastor. They went to the Anglican church on a nearby hill. The pastor opened his Bible and showed my mother the story of the man who pleaded with Jesus to heal his son, saying, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. The pastor and four church members fasted and prayed for seven days, singing songs of peace and laying hands on me each night. On the seventh night, I felt as though I were coming up through water. I heard the name of Jesus over and over until I began to know myself again. Walking home that night, I believed Jesus had restored me, but I didn't really know Jesus. Over the next seven months, as I again tried to finish my final year of school, one day while working on an assignment, something in my gut went wrong. I thought my organs were being pulled apart, and every breath felt like a knife cut. The teacher rushed to get help as I fell to the floor, foaming at the mouth. My father took me to a famous Western doctor who had been in Rwanda for decades. He was puzzled. Things are bad, he said, but there's nothing I can point to. There's no obvious medical cause. Within a week, a Doctors at the best hospital in Rwanda began palliative care. With my first dose of pain medication, a prickling sensation crept up from my spine to my extremities. I was completely paralyzed. 
with no way to communicate. Around 9 p.m., I became terribly alert. Seeing a change in me, people rushed into the room. I felt as if my heart was being tugged until it was dragged out through my mouth. It was a strange sensation, more spiritual than physical. At the same time, something like a strong wind swept me up, and my heart stopped. The next morning, 12 hours later, with my grave dug and my body being washed and clothed for burial, according to our traditions, I coughed, tossed aside my sheet, and stood up. People ran away, screaming. Confused, I looked around, realizing someone must have died. Turning to a huddled group, staring at me, I saw a familiar face. It was Jesus. He raised his hand and gave me a knowing smile. I have no idea how long he stood looking at me, but I felt perfect contentment. When he finally spoke, he lifted his hand, revealing holes in each one, and he said, You are among those I died for, so do not deny it anymore. You must tell others. Reveal it. I obeyed the Lord Jesus. That day I went directly to a church, still wearing my burial cloth. And for the last 18 years, I have been telling others about him. Although my father and members of my community first tried to kill me, both he and my mother, along with my siblings and many from that community, have found Jesus. Today I am an Anglican pastor who preaches across Africa, calling people to Christ and calling Christians to walk in the light. Amen.